This is a podcast from ABC Radio Overnights. I'm Rod Quinn. It's time for our talking point this morning. And this morning, our talking point is the United Nations. Peace, dignity and equality on a healthy planet. That is the motto for the world's most recognised international organisation, the United Nations. On the 24th of October 1945, it came into existence following the ratification of the UN Charter. More than 75 years later, what impact has it made on the world? We know it's fundamentally aimed at maintaining international peace, security and cooperation. But what does it actually do? And, more importantly even, what would a world without the UN look like? And how did it come about? What role did Australia play? Do you think that the UN plays an important role in the world? Or in situations like we're seeing in Ukraine at the moment, is it exposed as an organisation that has very little influence over major events? Our guest this morning is Ian Hurd. He's Professor of Political Science at Northwestern University in Illinois, author of the award-winning book After Anarchy, Legitimacy and Power in the United Nations Security Council. Professor Heard, a very good morning. Welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. The UN was founded in 1945 after World War II. How different was it to, say, the League of Nations, which preceded it, uh, a similar world organisation that came about after World War One, and is seen as a failure because it failed to prevent World War Two. So how different were the two organizations, or are they? They're really similar in their sort of generic shape. Both of them come out of the idea that you might make the world a better place by giving a place where governments can come together to talk about their interests, shared interests or conflicting interests, and also maybe where you could have a bit of an enforcement body that is sort of in charge of collective affairs for all the countries and might be able to put down an aggressor under the right circumstances. So they come out of the same kind of imagination about how to organize the world. They're different in their details. So who gets to be a member and what the particular powers are of the organization are a little bit different. Uh, The United Nations is a little more centralized in its enforcement capacity than the League was. They're pretty similar, though, in their kind of vision that they express about how to make the world a better place. But the U.S. leads the United Nations. It has its headquarters in New York City there. But the U.S. weren't was not in the League of Nations. It, it leads the United Nations in a way, but it wasn't in the League of Nations. Was that why it ultimately failed, or was it always going to fail once World War II broke out? Well, the, the League in the U.S. kind of fell um, victim to a branch of the Senate that was kind of afraid of getting the U.S. entangled in overseas affairs. Um, That might sound familiar today. There's a kind of isolationist streak. What they were particularly worried about was that the League might have the capacity to declare war on an aggressor on behalf of the U.S. And this small group of senators were worried that that would kind of usurp the authority of the American president and of Congress to be in charge of American foreign policy. So the U.S. didn't join the League because there was that um, that concern among a small group of senators that it was going to potentially uh, override American sovereignty. Uh, the U.S., when it came to the U.N., 
20 years later, was much more influential in writing the charter in a way that the U.S. liked and that avoided those objections in the Senate. That overriding sovereignty sounds very much like the Brexit problem, doesn't it? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, if you live in a world where territory is divided between independent countries and you treat each country as a kind of sovereign equal to all the others, you immediately confront the problem of what to do about stuff that goes across the borders, what to do when people go across borders or pollution or trade or money. Uh, As soon as you draw borders, you have to start thinking about how to manage stuff that crosses the borders because there's always going to be that stuff. And then you get into this tension between whether the government is the ultimate decider or if there's some kind of international coordination to make things run more smoothly. You're right, it's exactly the Brexit question. So the UN began basically in 1945. How different is it now compared with how it was in 1945? Does it do pretty much the same thing? Is it just a, a bigger organisation? Or is it, or has it changed immensely in the last 70-odd years, 75 years or so? Its structure is pretty much exactly the same as it was in 1945, which means it's more or less exactly what it was when it was drafted in 1944. So there hasn't been a huge change in, in the legal parameters, what the organization's allowed to do or who are its members and stuff. Um, in fact, this is a bit of a dilemma today because the charter still says that the USSR is a permanent member of the Security Council. Mm. And of course, that country hasn't existed for 20 years, 30 years, but the charter still gives a seat to the USSR. So there's you know these sort of structural leftovers from 1945 that remain exactly the same. But of course, its scope of activity has expanded a lot. And people's expectations, I think, have expanded. It's pretty common today to hear whenever any crisis comes up around the world, people say things like, well, the UN really ought to do something about this, right? Whether it's the Ukraine war from Russia or it's famine somewhere or it's climate change, people's expectations are that if there's a world problem, the UN should be at the front of managing it. That's a pretty big remit for an organization. Let's just talk about Russia for a moment. Debbie is with us in Brisbane. Debbie, good morning. Hello, Rod and Professor. Look, this is a marvellous conversation. I've been wanting to ask a question for a very, very long time. Yeah. With that uh, permanent uh, membership, correct me if I'm wrong on any of this, you've got the US, the UK, France, China and Russia. And when do you get to a point, as we've seen with Russia, where one of those members becomes unfit to hold that role? because particularly given what Russia has done in Ukraine, and if they remain in that position, they can just veto everything, which we often find when the West puts something up, China and uh, Russia will come together and veto uh, that proposal, that motion. So what can we do or what can be done to remove one of those permanent members if, as I said, they aren't fit to hold that role? All right, Debbie, thank you very much. A very good question. Russia is one of the permanent members of the Security Council, known as the Big Five, can they be kicked off? As you say, they're not actually a member. I suppose the USSR is a member and Russia just uh, assumed that seat. But can change ever be made to the permanent members of the Security Council and does that make a a difference? There is a rule in Article 6 of the Charter that says that a country can be kicked out of the organisation if it persistently violates the principles of the organisation. 
So there is a channel there for getting rid of UN members if they are persistent misbehaviors, if you like. But the kicker to that article is that these expulsions happen when the Security Council recommends it. So if you were imagining mm -hmm. punishing Russia for its invasion, you would need the Security Council to endorse it. All and five as you members. Pointed out, all five members, right, plus a few other the non-permanent members. Mm -hmm. So Russia would have a veto over whether to punish itself for its invasion of Ukraine. So that's pretty hard to imagine happening. And that's the only way you can get rid of a member of the UN unless they choose to leave. So this, the, you know, you can immediately, everybody recognizes the tangle that that creates where the permanent members can prevent any action being taken against themselves and they can insulate all of their own policies against collective sanction just as the US did after it invaded Iraq in 2003, yeah. the permanent members have this power. The thing to remember is that they have that power on purpose. It's not an accident. In 1944 and 45, the US, the Soviets and the UK insisted that this veto be absolute <laughs> and unchangeable because they wanted to protect exactly their freedom of action to do things that others might disagree with. So that's baked right into the pie of the United Nations, and I can't imagine getting rid of it, which, although you open up a big question about how you might change the permanent mm -hmm. members of the council, and that's a, a big topic too. Which we'll get to that in a second. Because, yes, right at the moment, people might think, well, you've got to get rid of Russia. They don't deserve to be on the Security Council. But the United States has invaded plenty of countries in the last 75 years or so. If there was a way of kicking countries off the Security Council, permanent members, then the U.S. might have gone by now. Yeah, and it's a good way to highlight the difference between the Security Council and the General Assembly at the U.N. The General Assembly, of course, is a forum that's open to all the members of the U.N., all 193 of them, and it makes resolutions by majority vote, and nobody has a special vote. So majority vote obtains in the General Assembly, but not in the Security Council and the framers of the UN made sure that all the really important decisions happened in the Security Council, which was dominated by the veto of the, the permanent members. And the General Assembly, with its majoritarian, more democratic feel, can only make recommendations, not take decisions, and yeah. there's a lot that it can't do. So that split is built right into the organization, but it was done on purpose. It's important to remember that. That's what the, the great powers at the time wanted, and that's the world we live with still. And that's the great powers at the time. These were, well, certainly the US, the UK, and Russia, the countries that won World War II. France was there. Hmm. At China, of course, a much bigger power now than it was in 1945, but it also was, I suppose, one of the winning countries in World War II. These countries, France in particular, is nowhere near the power that it was, even in 1945 when it was it was on its last legs as a power. Uh, these do not represent the world, do they? I know that there are other members of the Security Council who are non-permanent uh, members, and they, they get their turn every couple of years. But it, it, is this... I mean, it's obviously not representative anymore of the world that we live in today. Why should these countries remain as the five permanent members? Well, it's interesting that you pose the question in terms of why should they remain? Because that's a different question than saying, why are they there? They're there because 
as you say, those countries were the most powerful ones at the beginning, and they got to decide the rules. So they decided a special place for themselves. That's clearly not representative. It's clearly not fair, I, I would say. Um, and it's also not really a reflection of the way power works today, but it's how it worked back then. And so the the people who write the rules are likely to write rules that favor themselves. They did a really good job of it here with a charter, because as you say, the charter is just the same now as it was way back then. So what about expanding the permanent members to 10, for example, and including other countries such as, well, Japan and Germany come to mind because they were the losers of World War II and they're far more powerful now than they were then. That's a great point. And um, we... Uh, in international affairs spend a lot of time debating how to expand the council. I think there's among governments a pretty widespread recognition of your point that it's time to have more permanent members and more members in general in the Security Council to reflect the realities today. That's pretty broadly um, agreed upon. But as soon as you start talking about specific countries, then everybody's got a different set of ideas. And governments are afraid of putting their their neighbor in a permanent position sure. if it means that they're excluded. So Pakistan won't accept that India could be a permanent member, for instance. And if you suggest Brazil from South America, then other South American countries say, well, why Brazil? Why not us? So the, the problem comes with the details. I think everyone agrees that the population in the council is, is kind of odd and it's a relic and doesn't really make much sense. But as soon as you start giving out goodies in the form of a permanent seat to a few more countries, then you end up in a kind of zero-sum fight okay. over which countries. The UN has an organization called the Open-Ended Working Group on Security Council Reform. It's spent about 40 years working through the question. It can never get itself to a resolution, <laughs> and people have started calling it the never-ending working group on Security <laughs> Council Reform. Uh, uh, Colin is with us as well. Good morning, Colin. Hi. What would you like to ask, Colin? Uh, I'm uh, just staggered that uh, so many um, brains could uh, formulate the charter for the United Nations and uh, not have a proviso in the rules that any nation who is a contributor to the charter who violates the charter, such as Russia is doing in attacking an innocent country, uh, that the charter should have a rule which says that country immediately loses its right to vote and to veto on that issue. On that particular issue or on any issue? No, on, on any issue that involves uh, an invasion of another country. Okay. All right, Colin, thank you very much. So... Uh, just on what Colin's talking about, was the UN set up in order to prevent war back in 1945? They've been through two world wars in 20-odd years. Was the purpose of the United Nations to prevent war? And if you invaded another country, you would lose your rights. I think it's best not to see it that way, although there's some truth to it. So think of it this way. The Charter designed a system that served the interests of the great powers at the time, the big countries that had won World War II, they were um, of a mind that uh, the world would benefit if they had some collective power to intervene if a country looked like it was going to start causing trouble. 
And the three, this is Russia, Soviets, um, the Americans and the British, thought that the three of them together would kind of oversee international affairs and step in if a country started to uh, upset the system. So that's the, the arrangement that they designed. And it was meant as a kind of collective organization of the three of them, and then later the five when they became the permanent members. So this, the UN does, as the caller asks, have a mechanism by which the organization can identify a threat to international peace and security, and then can take enforcement action against the cause of that threat. That's what the system does. But the way it does it is by giving that power to the Security Council to identify threats to peace and then to decide what should be done in response. And inside the Security Council, the permanent members get the veto. And there's no exception to the veto over issues like this, at least. So in a way, the organization was set up to prevent war, but it was set up to prevent war that were caused by small and medium states. And it was set up so that the great powers would tamp down issues that were you know, threats and stuff that came from the small and medium states. It, I think they were realistic about the idea that if the great powers want to go to war with each other, no organization is going to be strong enough to stand up to that. So you, the veto causes the organization to get out of the way if the great powers disagree about what should be done. It's a way of preserving the organization, but at the expense of leaving the permanent members kind of unconstrained when it comes to their own invasions. Of course. Thanks very much for that, Colin. Uh, Greg says, why weren't the countries who invaded Iraq sanctioned when it was obvious there were no weapons of mass destruction in that country? That's a great point, and I think the answer is more or less the same, that the uh, the only way to sanction, with force at least, is through the Security Council, and the U.S. and some of its allies had no interest in being sanctioned, so they were able to veto any collective measure. So given that that's the reality of how the organization works, the more creative mode might be to start looking for other parts of the institution where you can make progress on anti-war causes or holding um, aggressors to account. So we might look at the General Assembly a second time and think about the kind of political impact that might come if a majority of the world's countries vote to condemn some act by the Americans or the Russians. Uh, or we might start to look at things that happen in the Human Rights Council uh, or in the courts system, the International mm -hmm. Criminal Court. So maybe we start looking for others because the Security Council is not going to satisfy people who want uh, a sensible, coherent, consistent body that punishes aggressors. That's not what it's designed to do. Okay. Peter in Caloundra in Queensland says, uh, I lost faith in the UN over Rwanda and Yugoslavia, and the Security Council is a joke. So in situations like Rwanda, when a, uh, basically a, a, a massacre took place, a holocaust took place, a genocide took place, and then we had the situation in, after the breakup of Yugoslavia as well, what could the UN have actually done? I mean, they have peacekeeping troops, but they don't have fighting troops. Can they actually ever send troops in after a war has begun to, to end it? Yeah, sure. It, it happens with some regularity that the Security Council authorizes the use of force to uh, respond to what it sees as a problem. 
uh, think of Libya and the end of Gaddafi, there's one example, uh, and the disarmament of Iraq that happened after the Iraq-Kuwait war. So it is certainly possible, and that's how the Security Council was designed, to sort of take on smaller powers that the Council thinks are a threat to international peace and security. But the, the question is right on target that that power is used very selectively, and I would, you could say easily inconsistently, uh, and often to poor effect. Well, it's an open question, I guess, whether that's better or worse than not having the power in the first place. But you might also say that, that the UN was heavily shamed for um, its response to the Rwandan massacres. It had peacekeepers in Rwanda at the time who weren't allowed to intervene to save innocent people from the killing. And that was a terrible result, of course, for all the people involved. But it also cost the United Nations a lot, as the question suggests. A lot of people lost faith in the organization. And in a way, that's a cost. That's a political cost for the organization for having done a poor job of responding. So there may be some way there where we could see improvement over time if the organization is serious about uh, learning the lessons of its failures in order to do a better job next time. Okay. We shouldn't just concentrate on the military aspect, the war aspect. There are plenty of other things about the UN which we'll talk about. And George has a question. Good morning, George. Good morning, Rod, and uh, good morning, Ian. Uh, yeah, just another aspect uh, which is very important uh, in the United Nations is the uh, Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which was uh, drafted about 48 and accepted in 49. Uh, but what, what I found interesting... Uh, is that a, a, a late friend of mine, the Australian playwright Alex Buzo, wrote a play called The Soviet Union, which uh, uh, <clears throat> followed up the uh, influence that uh, particularly uh, uh, Herbert Doc Evatt, a very famous uh, political figure in Australia, who was a federal court judge and the, the leader of the federal opposition, uh, uh, was heavily involved in the actual drafting of the Universal Declaration and uh, probably had a lot more influence than people realise, because as the play pointed out, he kind of tirelessly went basically from committee room to committee room putting in his five cents worth and because uh, you know history is made by those who turn up he probably had more input than a lot of other people did but what was interesting about it was the fact that there's only 48 countries actually ratified it in the original uh, version and uh, if you look at the list of them including things like Burma and China and uh, a few others uh, there maybe they're human rights record isn't the greatest and also the abstentions on the vote were rather interesting there's the Soviet Union including the Ukraine obviously is Belarus was a part of the Soviet Union and Saudi Arabia I think they were opposing it on the fact that uh, they didn't like one of the articles about people being able to change their religion or religious beliefs and uh, the the uh, communist bloc countries including Poland Czechoslovakia etc and the Soviet Union right, let's move like to the, the question about, George yeah didn't like the article about uh, people leaving the country but yeah I just wanted uh, Ian's uh, input into uh, how uh, uh, the the UN declaration has changed okay. over the years. Has it changed significantly, or is it basically still pretty much intact from the original declaration? Okay, all right, good question. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights, Ian. Yeah, I, th I think the, the caller raises a good point that when we talk about the United Nations, we can talk about it in a little sense, in the organization itself and the, char the uh, charter and the uh, Security Council. 
or in a much bigger sense where it's really a lot of other things as well. Uh, and the UN Declaration of Human Rights is part of the broader world of the United Nations. And it's worth remembering that the UN system broadly includes the World Food Program and the World Health Organization and so many programs and projects around the world that are not affected by the Security Council uh, veto politics in the same way as war and peace might be. So I think it's great to focus on that bigger world as well. The Declaration of Human Rights is essentially unchanged since its original language in the 1940s. Uh, it's not a legally binding uh, commitment by governments, but it does show a really useful open-ended political role for United Nations declarations where the UN is often looked to, to set aspirations and goals for the community of states or perhaps for humanity. And it's looked to as a voice of collective interests. When it does things like make pronouncements about human rights, it does speak with a lot of weight uh, that resonates with people in, in important ways. Now, the real power maybe though comes down the line in later decades as institutions like the International Criminal Court take up some of the aspirations of the Declaration of Human Rights and make them legally actionable in countries and at the international level. Because at that point, then, if you're put in prison in whatever country, you might use these international instruments in your appeal against the authorities to try to improve your treatment. And then when these things become tools in the hands of people, they can really be leveraged sometimes in limited ways for good purposes to improve people's lives. All right. So thanks very much for the question, George. Tell us about some of those uh, agencies, though. As I mentioned, we kind of concentrate on the, the, the war and the military side of things. But the UN agencies do incredible good work around the world. Are they generally let into every country and what do they do? So the the world of the UN is as vast as as human experience. So there are parts of the UN that deal with agriculture and food, and parts that deal with science standards, and parts that deal with uh, with health, um, well being. Um, some of it is thinking about how to prevent governments from torturing people. Some of it is thinking about outer space law. So there are parts of the UN that deal with pretty much everything, but as with anything that big, uh, the effects depend on local conditions and what people are able to accomplish. Um, but the basic issue, I guess, comes down to the fact that those agencies can only operate if they have the cooperation of the local government. So when the World Health Organization aims to, let's say, vaccinate people, uh, it can offer lots of assistance in a vaccination drive, but it can't do it against the wishes of the local government. So all of that vast umbrella of organizations needs to find a way to work with the governments. It can't work at cross purposes to them. So that shifts a little bit who they're answerable to. The UN is trying to accomplish collective goals for sure, but to work inside any individual country, whether it's Australia or Bangladesh or India, uh, needs the permission of the government. So they can't do things that the government opposes. 
That's the basic puzzle that each of these agencies faces every day in all of its operations. Yes, and uh, no country is perfect and nobody wants the UN turning up telling them that they're uh, doing something wrong, Australia included. We've got Miles, though, ringing this morning, who has an extraordinary story to tell. Miles, good morning. Good morning, and how are you going at this early hour? <laughs> I'm very well, thank you, Miles. You uh, were a peacekeeper for the UN. Yes, I was uh, in the uh, the 34th Battalion. Uh, we were the uh, the second battalion to be sent into the Congo trouble when that started. And of course, as you talk about Rwanda, of course, being in the Congo so many, many years later, uh, for the stupidity that went on there, we hit the same thing back in 1961. I was in the Irish Air Corps. I joined in 1957 in the Irish Air Corps as a mechanic in the Irish Air Corps, working on the Spitfire T9s, which are the uh, the, the two-seat Spitfires. And uh, the when the Congo blew up in, in, in 1960. Uh, they were looking for neutral countries to go to the Congo, but they wanted, as they said, uh, countries in Europe, they wanted a couple from Europe, that had no uh, colonial baggage. So Ireland put in for to put in, and so did Sweden. Of course, Sweden at the moment, that that we're just talking about, we served as the Swedes, and with the Indians. We had the Gurkhas out there, we had the Gurkhas and the Sikhs, and, and the we, we were actually based alongside down in, in Leopoldville, which is now Kinshasa, and in in uh, in, in, in uh, Katanga, uh, which is, we were there. Now we lost a couple of men, and uh, it's it's coming up to the anniversary. It was about this time that I just got back from the Congo in 1961. So, what sort of things did you do to make sure that there was no there were no problems? It was there's a problem was when Lumumba became the the uh, the prime minister of the Congo, and of course you know how he was stabbed in the back. Russia came in on a very big, big, uh, very big occasion. When I got back here uh, just a few years ago, I was back in Dublin, I decided I didn't know what the hell was happening in Ireland when we were in, in the middle of Africa. Now, we, we had lost uh, the battalion before us. Uh, we had, were in an ambush. We weren't supposed to. We were going out there for a big holiday, you know, no, nothing like being in the middle of winter and you're going to, going to Africa. And so we, we lost, uh, we lost uh, nine men that were completely massacred. Uh, Eleven were attacked. And the, the, in, in the Congo, and that was in uh, 1960. This was all about the same time that uh, that Mr. Kennedy was being made, the uh, going to be inaugurated as the president of the United States of America, and suddenly this flash came over the. Uh, Miles, over, I'll just ask you to get to your experiences, if you can, of what you actually did to I was, keep I was, the peace. I, I, I was a peacekeeping trooper. I was a soldier. What did you actually do, though? Did you fire your weapons? Did you have to protect or guard things? Yeah, we we, we went out on patrols. We went around to the area. If you wanted to get this thing, I know what you want to think. There is a book written by this man. It's called Michael Hambroke, and he comes from, he used to come from Rhodesia. And there's a, he mentions uh, everything, people who were in concentration camps. He rang me up, and this was going back about five or six years ago, and he wanted to know, he said you, you were in you were in Africa in the Congo with the UN. I said yeah, and we were the first Irish troops to go overseas. Okay. In, right. in, in, yeah. Well, all right, Miles, I appreciate that, and thank you very much for your service, uh, Ian. Have they been sent everywhere in the world, peacekeepers? Yeah, um, certainly sent wide widely. Um, 
And let's remember too that there's there's basically two different models here that we're talking about. If you want to send a peace operation out of a UN, you need to decide first if you're doing it with the consent of the people in the fight or if you are taking sides in the fight. Right. And the experience of the caller in Congo reminds us that if UN soldiers are going in to take sides in a fight, that puts them in the in the crosshairs of the warring parties and they're stepping into life and death conflict that matters a lot to the to the local combatants. Um, the more normal peacekeeping model today is to only send UN operations in places where all the parties to the conflict basically agree that the UN can operate there. Mm -hmm. And that creates a much safer environment for the UN, but it drastically limits the places where you might send UN troops. Okay. A couple more text messages. Uh, Chris says the majority of UN members should be able to vote out a member of the Permanent Security Council. We'd have no Russia today. But the thing is, they might have, might have voted out the US, they might have voted out the UK at various times, or France or China even. I mean, if you're voting them out, do you replace them with someone? That's the problem, isn't it? Yeah, well, you know, voting is a funny thing, right? It can work in your favor and it can work against you, depending on uh, who's got the majority at any moment and what the issue is. So you're right that if there was a way to kick out permanent members, the Security Council would end as we know it. So there wouldn't be a Security Council because the permanent members would either, you know, quit or they would have all been voted out by now at some point. Mm. So... It's yeah. an interesting question, you know. How do you want to run? How do you want to run? What's realistic in uh, in creating an institution where there are such great inequalities of power, and you're trying to accommodate around them? But the rest of the Security Council, to go back to that, they have two year terms, I think, don't they? Why not make it uh, say ten or twenty year terms for the uh, the five, the big five, and uh, they rotate as well. Yeah, that's a great idea, and it's been suggested now that the permanent members should shift from being permanent to being just kind of long term. Um, but as a practical matter, if you want to make that change, you have to get the five permanent exactly. members today yeah. to agree to it. And that's maybe a little unlikely, but um, but it certainly would change the dynamics uh, for sure. But the trouble is getting them to agree. And the basic problem of politics, right, is who gets to decide this stuff. Yeah. So, so the um, system... Yeah, indeed. Um now, this might be slightly off point, but Bushy, who's out in the country, uh, he says, why does India keep trade up with Russia? Worse is that India is also part of the Commonwealth. How can India be part of the Commonwealth and sit on the UN? Isn't that sitting on the fence trading with Russia? Uh, that's sort of something that's come up certainly uh, today as well, and India has defended that. But given that Russia is a, an international pariah at the moment, does that make countries that trade with Russia, does that make them pariahs as well? Well, India does a fair amount of business with Russia. And, you know, if you think in UN terms, it is a sovereign country that's supposed to be allowed to decide for itself how to conduct its affairs. So if it chooses to stay in business with the Russian government, then I guess in a UN sense, that's uh, its right. Um, there's not a very, uh, there's no co uh, collective action in the United Nations to demand that all UN members stop trading with Russia. 
That's the kind of thing that could happen in the Security Council uh, and does happen when they target weaker countries, but it has no chance of passing the Security Council since Russia would veto it. So there isn't any collective legal obligation to stop mm -hmm. trading. I guess all there is is that there might be bilateral relations that are harmed if other governments um, don't appreciate India's continued cooperation with the Russian government, then perhaps those bilateral ties will fray. So another question is, which is a what if, what if the UN did not exist? What difference would there have been in the world over the last 75 years or so if the UN had not existed? The organization is premised on the theory that it's good to have an, a body where governments come together even when they disagree with each other. So that's the underlying ideology, if you like, as it was for the League of Nations, that all countries get to join and that there's something good that comes out of the interactions, even across disagreements, very different kinds of regime, different policies. So uh, I think if there were not a UN, um, uh, you would probably see the rise of a lot of ad hoc multilateral meetings it would be just a little bit harder if you wanted to organize a joint statement on human rights, let's say, to bring the countries together in an ad hoc way to write the Declaration of Human Rights, for instance, than it is now since you can take advantage of the infrastructure of the UN. You know that the organization is there, it has offices all over the world, it's got annual meetings, you can find the diplomats there. So I think it's probably true that it's a little easier to make international agreements um, with the organization. What about the war in Ukraine at the moment? What influences the UN had there? It's been pretty interesting because it's uh, the original invasion a month or so ago really provoked a flurry of UN activity. It really brought the Security Council back to life. We hadn't heard much about it in the last few years. But because it provoked such outrage and such a clear sense of right and wrong on various sides, the Security Council sprang into action, had very public meetings at a very high level of diplomatic representation, and then Russia vetoed any action. So the net result was no collective action from the council, but a really public um, isolation of the Russian government from the organs of the UN. I think that probably carries a bunch of costs. It makes it clear that this is a Russian activity, the, a unilateral Russian choice to invade Ukraine and that there aren't very many allies on its side. So it's not enough to stop the invasion, but there is a lot of political weight, a lot of performance, if you like, of, um, of, of unity on the part of those who are opposed to the aggression and isolation on the Russian side. Yeah. So the UN can impose sanctions on countries like Russia. Uh, have they done anything? We've heard a lot about what the US and Australia and other parts of the world have done. What about the UN when it comes to Russia and Ukraine? The UN could impose sanctions, but it would come through a decision of the Security Council. And so, so since Russia happen? could veto a decision, there won't be sanctions from the UN. That's right. What would they do? So what, if, what kind of sanctions would we talk about? Well, the Security Council can impose any cost on a country that it thinks is threatening international peace and security, and it could be economic sanctions, or it could be a blockade or a diplomatic uh, lockout, or it could be military action. And we have examples in history of each of these levels of involvement coming from the Security Council. 
Uh, a very common thing for the council to do is to insist that no country go into business with a, a pariah government. So that isolates the government from international business and interaction. Mm. But did, you can't yeah. get that in this case. No. Did they do that during the apartheid era in South Africa? Uh, no, because the US and the UK supported the apartheid government for long enough that uh, the Security Council yeah, didn't get around to it. Something to be uh, proud so of. So those do. Right. Mm. But it, yeah, there was a movement to expel South Africa and the apartheid government from the United Nations. Um, but as we mentioned, to do that, you need the approval of the Security Council. And the Americans and the British made clear they weren't going to support it, so it didn't happen. Are there any countries that are not in the UN? I know that Switzerland only joined 20 years ago or so. Are there any countries that are not in it, and why aren't they? Uh, well, the it, it raises a great question about who counts as a country. Uh, the answer is probably that all countries are now members of the UN, but you got to squint a little bit to figure out who counts as a country. Mm -hmm. So Taiwan is not a member of the UN, uh, right? Because um, China wouldn't allow that. Right. And so the question comes up, well, is it, is it a country, you know, legally speaking, or, you know, its status is kind of, um, kind of up, uh, I think or its, it's status is exactly. Surely, surely it's a country. It's just that China doesn't think so. And nobody wants to annoy China. Right. So the UN has a hard time today um, taking the position that Taiwan should be a UN member because China opposes it and a lot of uh, a lot of other governments aren't willing to make that stand. I think the broader point is that uh, it's it's not self-evident who counts as a country. So right? because some of these things are fought over. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the uh, things you sometimes hear is, oh, FIFA, for example, has more members than the UN because everyone wants to be a member of FIFA. Um, and, you know, Palestine, for example, is, is a member of FIFA, I think, but is it a member of the UN? Yeah, it's not a member of the UN. It has a kind of observer status. Uh, so, yeah, you're right. And, I, I would, you know, who knows? The International Snooker Commission yes, may well have more members than the UN. Um, it's a very strong because... international body, I can tell you that. <laughs> we take our cues uh, from them. Boom. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so, you know, you've, you yeah. accidentally or perhaps on purpose raised a, a deep conceptual conundrum. Who exactly. counts as a country? Okay. What's a country? Yeah. All right. We'll come back to that in a moment. John, good morning. Hey, good morning, Rod. Good morning. Bloke, <laughs> Ian Hurd, oh. Professor Ian uh, Hurd, the one's yeah, leading yeah. experts on the uh, UN Security Council. But yeah, go ahead, sorry, John. Ian. That's all right. Um, I don't understand this veto business. Um, it's supposed to be a democratic council, and, and so they make a decision, and so Russia and China veto just about everything at the moment. But does that mean that the decision that the council makes is null and void? Or, you know, like if you, if you go to a committee meeting and, and six vote for it and two vote against it, mm -hmm. it generally goes through, the decision generally goes through, but the yeah the, these guys throw in a veto. Does that make the decision null and void, or does it still go ahead? No, or, that's or, uh, pretty much. Thanks, John. That's pretty much exactly what happens, isn't it, Ian? That uh, you need a hundred percent. No, you don't need a hundred percent. A hundred percent of the sorry, but I mean you 
of the permanent oh, yeah. members. Yeah, so right. So you need nine out of 15 members of the Security Council to vote in favor of something for it to pass. And that nine has to include the five permanent members. So if it doesn't pass, it is null and void. It, it's not a decision. It didn't happen. Just like in any parliament, if a measure doesn't pass, it doesn't exist as a kind of legal measure. You might be able to point to the debate that it engendered and say, look at all these issues that got brought out to the public. That could have a lot of effect, but legally the issue is dead if it is vetoed. And the caller had an interesting set of phrasing there where they suggested that the council is meant to be a democratic body. Yeah. I think in fact, it's not. No. It's not meant to be a democratic body. It's got a little bit of democracy in the sense that it's got you know, a majority vote system, two thirds majority vote system. But with the veto, it's pretty clear that it's not democratic. It's meant to be a, a small club of self-appointed powers who are kind of gatekeepers that decide whether things can go through or not. I don't know, a little bit like the maybe the Supreme Court in the United States or the council in Iran, where you know the, the ultimate decision on whether something gets to be lawful or not goes through a small group of gatekeepers. It's not very democratic. Although with the Supreme Court or the High Court in Australia, you don't need 100% to vote in favour of it. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But you have a situation where a very small group of actors controls, uh, you know, access to kind of legal uh, status for for provisions. Um, so it's a great question. I, I see it as a question, I guess, is the Security Council meant to be democratic or not? Uh, I don't think that the powers that were putting it together were particularly committed to it being a democratic body. I think that was a little bit uh, uncomfortable for them. And they wanted to make sure that nothing could get through that interfered with their interests. We've had a lot of wars in the last 75 years. Obviously, there's one going on at the moment, but no kind of world war. There's a Cold War for a long time. Would you say that's the biggest success for the UN, that we haven't had a world war in those last seven or eight decades? I think the better successes for the UN are probably on a smaller scale. Um, you know, practical programs that improve the lives of regular people through the World Food Program, perhaps, or the energy and environment programs. I think that the successes might be a little quieter than you're suggesting. Because uh, the UN has a hard time getting a handle on the biggest conflicts of the time. When the Soviet Union and the Americans are at each other's throats as governments, let's say, the UN's not very effective. When Russia invades Ukraine, the UN doesn't really have the capacity to resolve or prevent the problems. I think that its successes might come in a more quiet register where there's less profile, but it has a, a greater effect on, on people's lives, or it has a real you know, sort of close to the ground effect on people's lives. We've only got about a minute to go. One of the other great things about the UN is its building in New York City, that incredible building on the East River there, which is one of the great examples of international mid-century architecture, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. It's an it's an impressive monument. Uh, you know, it's and it's a little bit falling down. And in the in the maintenance of the building, you can see some of the echoes of the political disagreements that we're talking about, in the sense that there to keep the building in in good shape and to the, keep the windows from leaking, you need a budget 
to invest in maintenance. And that budget gets extracted from the UN members. Hmm. And every time there's a maintenance problem, they have a fight over who's going to pay the costs. Unfortunately, they've re sort of designed the foyer there so it doesn't look like it did in north by northwest but still it's a remarkable building ian thank you very much for your insight into the un in particular the security council i really appreciate it and thank you so so much my pleasure glad to talk to you that was professor ian hurd our very special guest from uh, the great northwestern university in uh well, chicago in illinois overnights with rod quinn on ABC Radio.